I moved to New York in 2013. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I stayed a year past when I thought I was going to move. Like around 2012, I had done what I thought was leveled out of New York, right? Like I was a consistent road feature. I was headlining the local bar shows every now and again on a slow weekend. The skull would give me a headline weekend. So I was like, there's nothing left for me to accomplish in Atlanta. Now it's time. And I ended up staying for one more year. And in staying for that year, that's where I actually grew. Like one more year being the big fish in the hometown. Like that one, even though I thought I was ready to move, I wasn't ready. Looking back, that one year of staying in Atlanta and once again eating up all that stage time and basically doing 30 to 40 minutes a night at the end of every show and even becoming a stronger road dog. Um, By the time I moved to New York, I just had so much more chops. Welcome to the Underground Comedy Podcast with Sean Joyce. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com. Hey, what's up? Thanks for checking us out. If you're in the D.C. area this weekend, we got D.C.'s Best Showcase at Big Hunt. Those shows will feature a couple of up-and-coming comics from New York with Sarah Tolomash from The Late Show closing out the showcases Friday and J.P. McDade from Comedy Central closing the shows on Saturday. Also this weekend, Adam Newman from HBO will be in from Los Angeles to headline D.C. Draft House. You can get tickets and info to all those shows on the website. Our guest today is Noah Gardenswartz. Noah is a great comic who has been headlining with us for years. He's a regular at the Comedy Cellar and is currently a writer for The Marvelous Miss Maisel. In this episode, he talks about knowing when it's time to move on, whether from a job or a city, and about how he was able to push through the setbacks he faced in his career in order to find success on the other side. You did a bunch of stuff before you did stand-up. Yeah. What did you, what did you study in college? I was a sociology major in college. Okay, so you're a sociology major, and then what was the first job you did after college? The first job I did was I was the editorial coordinator at an alt-weekly paper. So it was, okay. it was called Creative Loafing. It was like the village voice of Atlanta, if you will. Okay. And I had interned there my second semester of senior year, and I was pretty much in charge of the comedy listings in Atlanta. It was the very beginning of Atlanta having somewhat of a burgeoning comedy scene. Okay. Um, and so I kind of took it on my back to try to get Atlanta comedy some coverage. So I really pushed comedy shows to the paper before anyone really knew there was something hey, Were you just a out. fan at that point? No, I was doing it. Okay. And they had a very strict rule about like not covering myself. Not that I would have anyway, but like right. I started something called the weekly profile where like every week I would profile a comedian and then try to list the shows that they were on. Um, and yeah, I tried to, I also, because Atlanta has a really, diverse scene i tried to split it up very equally between like the black scene the white scene paying attention to all mainstream college all that yeah so i I would like to say i prided myself on pretty good overall coverage you're the first person that i've ever talked to that was doing any type of comedy writing yeah and it was a weird it was like a conflict of interest without me realizing it Uh at the time um and again like the paper was good in being very clear from the beginning, like this is not your place to like plug your own career, nor was that my intention. Right. But um, even from an indirect standpoint of me not knowing at the time, but like certain shows, knowing that I wrote for Creative Loafing and either wanting oh, me yeah, definitely. to write the show, you know, and so it's one of those things where like, I'd like to say comedians in the scene weren't giving me opportunities I didn't deserve yet. But uh-huh. at the same time, there had to be some element at play that I was just kind of naive to at the beginning of yeah. like, oh, that's no from Creative Loafing. Let's. See. But at the same time, I worked really hard at it and was genuinely funny when I got my opportunities. So if you if if 
you know, being a, a writer or performer wasn't a possibility for you. Do you think writing about comedy is something that you would like to do? No. And okay. especially now that I see like now that I see the way yeah. comedy coverage has become its own industry. I'm like, you couldn't pay me to do it. Yeah, like yeah. I have absolutely no desire. And and like when I was when I was writing about comedy, it wasn't. I wasn't taking like a critical analysis yeah, you of were, jokes you, you and trying, trying to, to like, boost people up. Yeah, I wasn't trying to like hold people's feet to the fire and like make them answer to jokes that I didn't appreciate or agree yeah, with. I was yeah. just kind of like, hey, this dude's funny. Why don't you go check out yeah, his show right, at right. the Star Bar? More it emotional. Was, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was like a 21 year old college intern. I wasn't right. trying to. And and the internet and social media weren't what they are now anyway. So it's yeah. like. So then what you, was the next job you had after that? So I was an editorial coordinator for a while and then. Um, I day traded for a hedge fund for a year, like right at the financial crisis crash, which was very fascinating because I was like kind of learning how to trade the market from people who had never seen the market we were currently trading. Yeah. Um, and that was fascinating, but it just wasn't like a very healthy lifestyle. It was right for before me. the crash? During. Okay. So, but, but you started but before or you started in the middle like of it? Like basically right before shit hit the absolute fan. Yeah. But in the middle of like them being like something is weird in the market. I definitely yeah. didn't start trading during a stable market, but I was an intraday trader. So it's like we weren't we weren't like a hedge fund trying to get long term gains for clients. There was one billionaire from New York who basically started this fund out of Atlanta mm -hmm. and he taught traders how to trade his money the way that he wanted to, which is like instead of instead of holding a position and hoping that the stock goes up two dollars or five dollars over the next month and a half they mm. wanted us to predict when it was going to go up by 10 cents in the next 10 minutes and do that over and over yeah, and yeah. over so it was like that's exactly the kind of market that traders can make money in, whether it's going up or down you just need the volatility yeah and so even though the market was crashing it was going on these wild swings and so it was a great time to be a trader so what kind of things were you looking for to figure out that if uh, if something was going to go up or down on that super short term basis. Oh, I mean, there's there's a million criteria. Like, I mean, at that time it was very news driven. News so reports, you yeah. Kind of, you had to be ahead of the news, but it's all based on volume. You learn how to read the charts. It it mattered what gold was doing, what oil was yeah. doing, and and honestly, I still follow the market and I still trade on my own. But like, the indicators now that worked ten years ago are completely different. And now sure. cryptocurrency is in there, so like everything. Has are you, and are you trading often? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't sit in front of my computer screen and trade all day. I have a job, but like I have positions that I monitor. And because I was trained in the market as a trader, I'm not invested in anything long term. Like I've seen the effects of how one news story can fuck yeah, yeah. everything over. It's right. a house of cards. So like while if you're invested in an index fund or a mutual fund over time, like the it market tends, to, tends to go up and you'll make money. I just don't believe that like five years from now, I can trust that a stock is going to be doing what it is. Right. So I'm like, instead of taking big positions and trying to conservatively plan for my future, I try to be small, dynamic, and make little money while I can in pockets. Cool. But I'm also a gambler. So well, it, like, I, it serves my my own interest. You're the second uh, day trader I've met in, you know, over the past few months and or maybe over the past year. And yeah, but he described himself as a gambler also. Well, yeah, you ha you have to have that. But what's interesting is like, trading was so much more hectic than anything comedy related that like people are like oh do you ever get stressed out when you're bombing or like how do you ride the emotional wave of comedy yeah. it's like compared to day trading the financial yeah. collapse of 2009 this comedy shit is nothing in terms of spiking my adrenaline so, were you were you like stressed out and like really in it at that time yeah 
very much so that's cool that's that's why i was like i loved it and it was so fun and i truly did feel like i was being paid to gamble and like yeah, yeah. it was awesome but i went to bed every night either thinking about the money i left on the table or the money i lost so it's right. just an unhealthy addiction yeah, you know, yeah if you yeah. are a gambler you can't really not take work home with you yeah definitely so then what did you do after that so then i did teach for america and i taught fourth grade <laughs> so what and what made you switch well so actually I, after, after I was like easing out of journalism, um, I wanted to do teach for America just because I didn't have any idea of what I wanted to do. And I figured it's a good two year program that would buy me time to figure out what I want to do with my life while also like serving something that I was, education isn't my passion, but I was like, you know, working with kids from underprivileged areas felt like a good way to spend my time and hopefully help out. Um, and so I applied to teach for America. I got accepted and they have a really, really rigorous six week program because teach for America is for people who have no background in teaching. And then they place you in like the most difficult places mm. to teach. So okay. they basically have six weeks to whip you into shape. And so they have a really intense program where you have to go teach summer school. And that summer that I was in the middle of my six week, like learning period, my mom passed away and I had to take three weeks off to go home and be with my family. And so they wouldn't allow me to teach the next year which was okay. kind of fucked up. Like I yeah. don't advocate for teach for America. I, I think like the idea behind what they're trying to do is great, but the organization itself, I don't have a lot of positive things to say, but, um, but so anyway, they wouldn't let me teach that following year. And so that's when I came back without a job and I got hired as a day trader. And then once I realized that day trading wasn't very healthy for me, I was like, let me go back to just so teach for America. I didn't have to like reapply. Uh, I, I had to go do the six week program again, Yeah, but I was already able to just go do it. So I did that. And then oddly enough, like as things always kind of come back full circle while I was teaching and after a year of teaching, I realized I did not want to keep doing that. So I was already looking for like, what's my exit plan. And that summer while I was on summer break, that's when Atlanta, the laughing, the very first laughing skull festival uh, okay. came out. And the two and a half years that I was doing these other jobs, I wasn't going to comedy shows. I wasn't writing jokes. Like I still had a side interest in comedy, but I really stepped away from the scene altogether. Yeah. Um, and Creative Loafing messaged me and were like, there's this festival, would you be interested in covering it as a freelancer? And I went back and covered it and was like so fascinated to see that these guys who I open mic with years ago were now doing like great comedy in this scene right. that had really jumped up. And I just like got that itch for comedy again. Like I was watching it and really started to miss it and that's when i went back to creative loafing and was like whatever i was saying about atlanta's comedy scene three years ago you should see what it is now like let me really cover this as strictly a comedy writer and so they brought me in kind of as like a heavily paid freelancer with consistent work to come and do um the comedy coverage and so at that point i put in my notice as a teacher and i uh, decided to stop teaching and went back to creative loafing to start writing but at that point, I was like so reignited in my comedy that like a few months in of comedy coverage, I was just like, fuck this. I can either spend my time writing about comedians yeah. or I can spend my time on my own comedy. And so I told Creative Loafing I was no longer interested in covering it. And that's kind of when I went full force with my own comedy. And the rest is history over a process of 10 more years. Yeah. So you would consider it to be 10 years that, that you've been doing stand up? Uh, I mean, I've, I've been doing it at this point, I would say 12 years of the last... 15 yeah you know like i started the summer of 2005 and i took two and a half years off um but yeah i've been doing comedy in some form or fashion for roughly 12 years and then how long were you in atlanta at, after that i was in atlanta like very seriously doing comedy for about six seven years before okay I moved so to pretty New long York. time yeah and you you 
move up to feature by that point? Yeah, like by the time I moved, I moved to New York in 2013. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I stayed a year past when I thought I was going to move. Like around 2012, I had done what I thought was leveled right. out of New York, right? Like I was a consistent road feature. I was headlining the local right. bar shows right. every now and again on a slow weekend. The Skull would give me a headline weekend. So I was like, there's nothing left for me to accomplish in Atlanta. Now it's time. And I ended up staying for one more year because I had a dog that I just loved and I couldn't find a good place for my dog to go live. I didn't want to give her up and I couldn't take her to New York with me. Mm -hmm. um, and in staying for that year, that's where I actually grew. Like one more year being the big fish oh, really? in the hometown. Like that one, even though I thought I was ready to move, I wasn't ready. Looking back, that one year of staying in Atlanta and once again eating up all that stage time and basically doing... 30 to 40 minutes a night at the end of every show and even becoming a stronger road dog um, by the time i moved to new york i just had so much more chops yeah do you think that that extra year being the big fish you think that was able to give you a lot of extra confidence and just develop as a more of a headliner type of energy absolutely i mean it just yeah it was like just one more year to work on my act like as opposed to going to new york and starting the process of being at the bottom of the line yeah, again trying to get and in, doing yeah. five minutes at open mics. I had one more year of, like I said, doing 40 minutes a night and really yeah. growing my act. And, you know, there's no right or wrong way to do it, but it's a very thin line between leaving too early and staying too long. And yeah, I right. like, I really lucked out and I think indirectly hitting the timing perfectly, but it's like, there are people who the first taste of being the man in their city moved to New York and then get lost in the shuffle and they left before they were ready. And then yeah. there's also people who get so comfortable in their city that they stay too long. And, you know, if you wait too long, people are going to pass you by Absolutely. in the cities where big opportunities happen. So yeah. it's anybody's guess. And, and people ask me, like, when should I move to New York? When should I move to L.A.? And there's no right answer. But you. Yeah. And I think it changes, too, over time. Like, I think maybe like when you should move if it's 2001 is different than when you should move when it's 2012 versus 2020. And it also depends on what your actual goals are, yeah, and what definitely. you're trying to do. Like we all do stand up, but there's very different ways we go about it or what we're trying to get out of it. Yeah. And it's like, are you going to start trying to get into commercials like immediately? Like, like, are you that, like that type of a person? Yeah. Like, like acting a, like a was theater, never, a theater acting person. was never yeah. something in my sight. So that also didn't affect my decision. Yeah. Where that maybe you, there's a reason to move sooner. Cause there's some opportunities where there's not, not sure, or why, or why you would choose LA over New York or vice versa. Right. But for me, it was all stand up. So New York was where I wanted to go. Was it a difficult transition when you got to New York? Oh, very. It was, n there's no easy way to get to New York and it was difficult for me and I had friends who were established there that like tried to vouch for me. So mm -hmm. like I went under better circumstances than most people right. going to New York would be. But there's first of all, New York is just an incredibly difficult place to live no matter what you're doing. So there's a six month to one year transition period of just trying to function in New York as a human being where the city's going to kick your ass on top of having to swallow your ego and start all over and be a new comic in a city with the world's best comedian. So it's yeah. like you're getting your ass kicked in everyday life. You're getting your ass kicked in comedy and it takes anywhere from one to five years to feel good in New York. But like once you do feel good, there's yeah. no better place to be, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. As a comedian. If I wasn't doing comedy, I would not live in New York. And what was like the first break that you got when you were up there? The first break that I got was JFL. That okay. was kind of the game changer for me. And I was I was very lucky in that Rebecca Trent um, at the time was one of the people who would like advise JFL on who should get auditions. And that that was kind of like in terms of not going to New York too early. 
I had friends who lived in New York that went a few years before me. And when I would do my like yearly trip up to New York, they would get me spots on cabins. So Rebecca knew me for a few okay. years and I was like this Atlanta guy that would come up and do my best. So I would come and she only saw like killer seven minute sets out of me once a year. So my first year in New York or my second year, like I did a whole year of nothing. And then going into that second year, she recommended me for JFL and I actually got it my first year. And, and from there I got a manager and that is when like shit got real. Yeah. And then you started getting, you got on last comic standing. That was, yeah, that was, that was two years after, or no, that was a year after JFL. Cause the people from last comic saw me at JFL and asked me to audition the next year. And you got, you did some Conan's. I did. Yeah. That was the year after last comic. So it was like a steady build of like right. one really good thing a year. But keep in mind, there were a lot of disappointments in between. Like, I don't want to make it seem like you go to New York, you get one thing. You what get was, the next dis- and it just what was like an example of a disappointment? So, for instance, after JFL, I got Guy Code on okay. MTV. And at the it, it's like laughable now. But at the time, no, it was Guy a big Code deal. was a hit that was launching careers. And so the people from MTV saw me at JFL. They asked me to audition. I got Guy Code told all my friends, all my family, I got guy code. I went in, I had a contract to do all 12 episodes. After three episodes, they called my manager, fired me, said my episodes weren't airing. They said I was too low energy and like my clips weren't working with the show, Wow. which, which is fine. It's fair. Like they have the right to use whatever they want and yeah, no one sure. owes you anything. But in all fairness, I, they saw me as a low energy comic. I auditioned as yeah, a low yeah. energy comic <laughs> and at no point in taping my three episodes were they ever like, Hey, can you pick it up a little bit? They were just like, Oh, this is great. This is such right. funny stuff. So I was completely caught off guard. And that was like my first cruel lesson in like, don't tell anyone you're doing anything on TV until after you've shot it yeah. and you know it's airing. What, did that, did you, did that get you down for a long period oh, of time? Yeah, horribly. And so I was, I don't want to depress is too strong of a word because I was still like enjoying life and very much having fun being a comedian in New York, but I was pretty fucking bummed and was not making any money doing comedy. Yeah. And the next year I got Last Comic Standing and Last Comic Standing was great. It was a TV credit, but at this time I still didn't have an agent and I was like certain that having a good TV credit and doing well on Last Comic Standing was going to get me an agent and my manager and I were plugging away. And after last comic standing, nothing changed. I had nothing new coming in. And so it was one of those things where now it's been two years of a few small wins that still really led to nothing. Didn't put any money in my pocket and weren't advancing my career beyond like one week of doing three minutes on TV and then forever forgotten. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you just kind of got to plug away. And then like a year later, I got Conan and then I got the half hour and, and it builds you know, and I've been very fortunate in my career and there's a lot of people that have given me opportunities that I'm forever grateful to. But in between those opportunities that change things, there were a lot of fucking losses and a lot of grinding and driving 10 hours and sleeping on couches yeah. to go do 10 minutes in a different city or going and doing a feature weekend to break even or lose money just for the sake of building your time and right. working on the craft. When were you able to start headlining? Like after, you know, I, after I got the half hour, half I got hour. an agent. And once I had an agent, they, okay. they started getting me some headline weekends. Yeah, that seems like a pretty a pretty common experience, I think, that getting the starting to be able to headline after the half hour. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like you have to understand agents think about it completely opposite the way comedians do, where like comedians assume as soon as they're proven to be good comedians, agents should be interested. But the fact is agents aren't interested until you can actually make them money. Yeah. They don't give a fuck until you're actually worth it. Well, the clubs don't give a fuck. So there's not really, I mean, it's not even the agent's fault. I mean, if, if the club is trying to sell tickets in a comic, isn't at that point, you know, there are very few comedy clubs or even good comedy weekends 
that are run by people who care enough about comedy to know like a good comedian to get in on the ground floor. And I'll, and I'll give you credit. You were one of the people that gave me one of my first true headline weekends before I had anything to go off of. Like I actually got my half hour from Comedy Central using the tape that I got at Big Hunt. And so that's why over the years, like I always come to D.C., like, I, I love coming to D.C. to do weekends, but I'll always come and do a weekend if you offer me because you were one of the people that was, like, down to give me work before anyone else was giving me work. And I and I do try to be grateful and remember that, you know? Yeah, man, that's, I mean, that's cool, and I, I definitely appreciate it. And it, it's been, you know, it's lucky for me to be able to book that way. You know, the show just kind of developed that way. It was, you know, it was just a free show, and then we started charging for it, and we ended up building up a local audience that meant that we could we could book people that didn't have a draw yet people that because there's a long time in between when you're good enough to headline and when you can sell enough tickets to headline in a club there's a long time yeah and that's the thing i'm still not a draw right Like, like there are a handful of cities where i myself can sell enough tickets based on people who will come out to see me and for the most part i just have really good credits that now my agent can push on the club and now I do some A rooms and some B rooms, but it's still all my agent convincing them, like, take a chance on this yeah. guy. Because I pride my, I am a very, I, I'll say, like, I'm a really good comic. I never, after a weekend, I never get bad feedback from the club of, like, oh, this guy's act was shit. People right. that come to the show generally leave happy with the hour of comedy they saw from me. But from an owner's standpoint, I'm not going to move units. Like, they need to right. paper the room and then hope that they sell a lot of chicken and beer. That's right. And I get it. But it's still a good weekend for them because there's not like an unlimited number of people who can even perform well for an entire weekend. Right. There, that's that's limited also. Uh, so you're still really offering something to them. And there are clubs that have systems in place that can that can fill up a room and that, that can make use sure. of comments like that. But yeah, but then it's a tough... Then when you get to your, your position, I mean, well, I guess just to round out your career stuff you you became a writer yeah for the marvelous miss mazel and you say mazel yeah people yeah, like to most, they like Maisel, to yeah, Maisel, yeah they yeah. like to say weird marvelous mrs mazel but it's tough when you become a writer because then you're making good money and you have a, a really feels like a career yeah but nobody's seeing your face on TV. And so then as far as building up a huge fan base and selling lots of tickets, you don't get that from, you just get the credit. Yeah. I mean, that's where you need to hope that there's, you know, TV appearances every now and again. Like I go out of my way to try to do a new late night set every year. Um, And the, the good thing about being a writer is once you have steady income, you don't necessarily need the club weekends to survive the way you do when you're just doing comedy. And now because Marvel, like most writers rooms are 10 to 13 weeks. So it's small, but we have an eight month writers room. So like there's only four months of the year that I'm available to even do the road. And so that helps pack out my road schedule as well. But like now I'm married, my wife is pregnant. So I'm like, even when I have weekends available to go do the road, I'm being really picky and choosy with, how and when I want to leave town. Right. You know, so it's like, I'm always grateful and appreciative of anyone that throws me work, but I'm not even necessarily going to say yes to opportunities that come my way to go do the road now because I'm trying to be home with my pregnant wife. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You got to make different choices uh, at a certain point. You also had a really tough thing right before that where you sold a show. Yes. And I don't know if that is, is that a painful 
situation still? Yes, and I mean, no, it's it's not. I, like, I'm not bitter about it now. It sucked in the, for anyone listening that doesn't know, uh, my best friend and I, Clayton English, we sold a show to True TV that um, got ordered to series, and then three weeks into the writer's room, they canceled the show because True got bought out by Time Warner, and they fired all the execs that were responsible for our show. So it, it was like a cold bucket of water being thrown on you because you're in the middle of living the dream of like oh shit i'm gonna be doing a tv show with my best friend but there were a few things that made it better one the first thing we were worried about is we had a few of our best friends that we got jobs in the writers rooms that literally moved from new york to la and then three weeks in we're suddenly jobless again and thank god all of our reps fought really hard to make sure the writers got paid out so like first and foremost we didn't feel bad about the people that uprooted their lives to come work for us they got paid we didn't get paid our full salaries but they still gave us a portion of our contract so like financially that didn't hurt then beyond that it wasn't a show clayton and i wrote it was a show true tv had in development that they asked us to be the oh that's much so like where, even though we we're very much living the dream of having a TV show, it wasn't our creative okay. baby that got That's canceled. Much better. So that takes a sting out of it. And then um, beyond that, I really do think like, you know, without sounding too corny, I do very much believe in like everything happens for a reason. You know, a, a door closes, a window opens. And it's like, I just, even though I didn't have anything in line, I trusted that as soon as that show got canceled, that I was now going to be available to do whatever the next thing was that I was going to be more passionate about. Yeah. You know, like before I got Miss Maisel, there were a few scripts that I wrote that I was like in talks to possibly sell that show. And looking back, they were all bad ideas that I wouldn't have cared about. Um, but like at the time, I was really bummed out that people weren't buying these scripts. And then I got an interview for Mrs. Maisel and I wasn't even worried about it. And I ended up getting hired. And at the time, it was the farthest thing from my mind or yeah. not what I cared about. And it ended up being literally the job that's changed my life for the better in so many ways. And and I can tell you right now that like if that show got picked up, my wife wouldn't be pregnant right now because I would like the timing just worked. I wouldn't have been with my wife when I was the week she got yeah. pregnant. I would have been working on the show. So it's like. You know, life happens and I've been lucky enough and fortunate enough to have enough great opportunities. And I've also even from things like guy code and like I've learned if you if you work in this industry for long enough, you realize there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs and you can't get too high with the highs. You can't get too low with the lows. It's just like par for the course. And so when the show got canceled, it sucked, but I wasn't going to like wallow away in misery and feel bad for myself. It was time to like get back to work on the next thing. Yeah. And you can I mean, you, you can also see like. You did get an opportunity really quickly after that, but right after it happened, you didn't stop trying. Like you immediately started writing other things and you start move you're trying to move forward. Yeah, well, there's there's too many people doing comedy to expect anything to be handed to you. Like yeah. like if you're waiting around for the next opportunity, it's never gonna come. At this point, like it's such an oversaturated field full of truly talented people that all offer something different. That like if you're not willing to hustle all the time, it's just probably not gonna happen for you. Yeah. So you said that writing on the show has changed your life. How, how do you think it has changed your life? Well, I mean, first and foremost, like, it's a critically acclaimed show that I'm really proud of yeah. and I'm really proud to be a part of. So like it gave me a new level of clout and respect in the industry, the doors it's open, just like the meetings that I can get now creatively. If I have an idea, the people that will listen to my pitch just yeah. based on the fact that I write for Maisel, it just bumped me up a tier in the industry. It gave me financial stability that I've never had before that allowed me to feel comfortable proposing to my girlfriend, who is now my wife. It gave me the financial stability for my wife and I to feel comfortable having a child. So it's like 
And then beyond that, I'm learning from some of the best TV writers in the business. So like whatever my next project goes on to be in the future after Maisel is done, I'll just be more prepared for yeah. the opportunities that I have. Having this experience where you're learning all this, and it's probably, I would imagine, maybe like a different type of TV than you expected to be in. Absolutely. Does that, does that open up possibilities for what maybe you would consider trying to do in the future? Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty open-minded in terms of what I want to do creatively in general. So even before Maisel, it's not like I had my heart set on writing one kind of thing and anything else wouldn't have worked. But, um, you know, I'm t working on a kind of dramedy where I, where I understand the value of grounded storylines as opposed to just like everything has to be a funny joke. Right. Now understanding how important it is to have substance behind it. But the truth is that's kind of the way... Um, entertainment is going like most dramas it now is, have yeah. comedy and most comedies have some heft to them so that's, definitely you know people just want grounded stories in general life is funny and life is also dramatic and when you can mix the two that's where you usually get the best product do you think that stand-up will always be a part of your career always always yeah. it's my first love it's my true love you know like i and ironically i got into stand-up to get into writing like that, yeah when i first started doing stand-up i hated performing and my big hope was that someone would notice that I was a good writer on stage and pull me off to write for them or write yeah. for TV. But then once I, uh, once I got comfortable on stage, I, I started being obsessed with being a comedian and, and you know, once you do it at a high level for a long time, I don't think you'll ever fully be done with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's addictive. And it's just, uh, I mean, even as I've like, haven't really performed for the past year, uh, it, it I'm, it's starting to make me feel weird like being around comics but like not performing yeah. well and also it's like there's a lot of different comedians who get their material from different places you know like political comedians rely on the news or absurdist comedians rely on crazy things yeah. happening around them in the world i my comedy is very much just a reflection of my life i go up there and talk about myself and what's happening to me so like as i get older and have more relatable universal life experiences like getting married like right. being prepared to be a parent there's just so many more jokes that are naturally flowing out of it where I feel really good about where my comedy is going. And, um, you know, like I feel good about my ability to produce new material quicker. Yeah. I think you're a good example of kind of the high end of what happens if you are a great writer and then you just develop straight from that and you just continue to just get better on stage, better as a writer, but it's really about the writing yeah. to me when I see your performance. Like right. it's yeah. about what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. I'm not a dynamic. It's not how you're saying so yeah. it. And like, you're not, you're also not trying to like create a certain persona. You're really just, you're fairly, you're like a regular guy, really. Yeah. I mean, and it, it, it took me, it took me years to figure out that a, that was my voice on stage and then B to be comfortable with that being my voice, like to truly be myself on stage and realize that was the comedy I was going to do and then figure out how to make that kind of comedy good and relatable. It, it took a long yeah. time to figure out, but like once you do figure out how to be yourself on stage and make it work from there, you know, what could be better than going and doing stand up as yeah. yourself and people like it. I mean, you can tell, like you're saying, people do leave happy. It is satisfying to watch. And you also naturally have done a good job over the years with your albums when structuring your material so that it is 
the they do go together you you know you talk about smoking pot and being a teacher yeah. on the and then you're talking about racial issues and now you're getting into family stuff with this new hour yeah i mean i i would think like what i'm working on this weekend will be the meat of whatever the next album is that i would hope to record next year and i would like to think that like anyone who's never heard of me that would go down and listen to all two or three albums in order would feel like they kind of grew with me over the period of yeah. five or six years. And there was a natural transition to how my life changed and went in a certain direction, but they would feel like they were along for the ride and that it was an honest reflection of where I was all along the way. Like, yeah, my first album was very much like single guy doing drugs and fucking. Yeah. And my second album was like, all right, I'm starting to settle down. I've had a little success. Now I'm in a relationship. And then mm -hmm. this next one is like, all right, I'm married with a fucking kid on the way. Yeah. And I mean, it's the way that it really has to be if it's going to be good, because the opposite of that is you never change as a person. Right. Just stagnating. You're just you're a single guy that's fucking forever. Right. And that gets, you know, tiresome. And it's also hard. I think it's hard when the topics don't change also to change your to just grow as a writer. I think when the topics are changing, it kind of naturally makes you find different different ways of, of writing that that can be funny. Sure. Um, so I think I think you go about it in like this this standard conventional way you're supposed to do it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. And I think it's I think it's gone well for you. And it, I uh what is do you know what's up with the show how long that show is it open-ended you go forever uh i mean you know the paladinos run it and so i obviously couldn't or wouldn't want to speak for them when when i went in for the interview before anything ever started they basically spoke to me on a five season arc we're going okay. into season four right now and i can confidently tell you we're not trying to wrap up the story this season so my guess is still five seasons. There's a possibility that as the world has grown, the Paladinos want to do more. And if Amazon wants to do more, I could see them maybe stretching it out to six. But my guess would be five with right. a max on six. Right. I could be wrong, but that's, yeah, who knows? I, yeah. I would, as a better, as a gambler, I would bet on five or six seasons. But that's nice to know that you have another season given your life circumstances. Yeah, because absolutely. you're going to have this, which I am also, we're both going to have babies right around the, I'm going to have a baby in March. You're going to have one yeah, in May. Congrats, man. Congrats to both of us. And, uh, do you, how, how do you think it's going to be trying to balance those things? Um, you never know until you know, Yeah. like I have a plan in place and who knows if it'll actually activate. One thing that helps is, I'm married to another comedian who understands and appreciates our lifestyle and also really appreciates how good my job is. Um, and she's incredibly supportive and incredibly strong. So like, I'm going to go out of my way to spend as much time with her and with our child as I can, you know, like I've already told her I'll be taking the morning shift. And before I go to work, I'll be up at 6am to get my hours in with the baby. Um, and I will most likely take less spots at night so I can be home with her or be home for the m late night feedings. Right. Um, and I'll be a lot more particular about what road weekends I take because I'm not trying to be away from them. But the job is the job and that's how I earn the money sure. to pay for our family. Sure. And so it, it's really about communicating and working as a unit to figure out what works best for us in the moment. We'll, we'll have to adjust as it happens. Yeah, definitely. I have no idea what to, I don't even know what I'm going to be able to keep doing that I do now and what I'm going to have to yeah, stop. Like, I, you know, it works itself out as long as you're willing to figure it out together and be honest about what is and isn't working for either of you and both of you. And I think that it's natural to, I mean, everybody has time where they're more locked in on stand up 
or they're less locked in. Sometimes like you're writing a ton, you're performing a ton, and then things happen in your life, whether you get a job or, or you move you move to a new city, you're, you don't get sure. spots, and you just have to pull back because you're trying to do something else. You know, you're trying to get into these clubs. You're not trying to build up material and, anymore. And I'm a big advocate of not making stand-up your entire life. Like when you're in your first few years and you are figuring out how to even be a comedian or try to find your voice, then yes, it's incredibly important to be on stage every night. Once you are comfortable as a comedian, you're clearly a professional, I think it's actually more important to take a few nights off and go be a regular person, go experience go to the movies, go see live music, go see a play, do nothing, sit on the couch with people you love and just experience things. So then you have more substance to then write about as opposed to spending every single night around comedians doing the same seven minutes trying to figure it out. Yeah, because you end up with all your tags are after I said this joke once and someone said this to me because yeah. that's the only thing that ever happens in your life right. is you say jokes to people and people talk to you about your jokes. If yeah, you, like more and more it's become important to me to just be a person and then hope that the material will come from that. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. I do think you got to go, you got to be kind of crazy in the early few years. Yeah. And then, then it's like, then you get to a point where you kind of understand how to do stand up. But then you have to figure out the rest of your life and put the rest of your life in Correct. around it. And uh, it seems like it's unfolding real nice for you. <laughs> so far, so good. We'll see. So congratulations on the show. Congratulations on the wife and the baby. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. It's great to have you. Great to be here as always. Thank you for having me on the podcast and at, uh, at your club. Okay, man. We'll see you next time. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com.